This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the program. Tonight, we are talking about how to divorce well with Allison Jones, who is a clinical counselor. Also going to be talking about that tough decision you have to make at the buffet table over the holidays, especially if you're keto. David Harper joins me as well. And we're drilling down into the reality about sexual abuse of young girls and also domestic violence of women. What is the truth? And are we asking the wrong questions? Now, I am going to be talking about a very difficult subject, especially around the holidays, um, especially if it happened to you around the holidays or if there's an impending one at this holiday season. And that's why I'm delighted to have Allison Jones on the line because we are going to be talking about her new podcast called The Divorce Well Podcast. Allison is the clinical director and the visionary at Allison and Jones and Associates at, in West Vancouver, British Columbia. She enthusiastically leads one of the largest counseling centers in the province of BC and approaches her work with passion and commitment. She enjoys contribution, connection, and community. And her work as a clinical director, counselor, public speaker, parent educator, teacher, and author enables her to touch the lives of many. She's on the line with me. Good evening, Allison. Good evening, Maureen. Thank you for joining me. It's great to be back. All the joys of the season to you. And to you. Thank you very much. Um, so you have a great new podcast at, called Divorce Well Podcast. This is something that occurs uh, quite often uh, to married couples or couples who've been living together. They may separate or people may even break up and, and need to divide a lot. So why the Divorce Well Podcast? What was your, the impetus behind it? Well, I think what we're we're looking at is any sort of platforms or mediums that we can get out and try to have conversations, adult conversations around how we can take care of uh, children and take care of our own mental health uh, through family transitions. So whether it be, um, you know, I'm so pleased that, that I'm able to come and talk this evening on your show or on a podcast or um, on a YouTube channel, we're always looking for ways to make this an uh, an honest and relevant conversation. So many, many uh, people that I have met through my clinical practice and in life have challenges with divorcing well. They might divorce, they might be good at that, but they don't necessarily do it well. And, and one of the fallouts from divorce often is the impact on the mental health of children, of their children, because parents get um, upset at one another, uh, they blame the other person, and they may use their children as pawns. They may not think of the health outcomes of their children after a divorce. So what are some of the biggest risks for people who are divorcing that have children? Well, the thing is, um, you know, we can we can do divorce well, and it is a part of the reality of our society now. But the costs of when people don't do it well are are significant, and significant to all of us, because children that have been through a high conflict or a difficult divorce have much greater um, health issues, not just mental health, but also physical health issues throughout their lives. It's, uh, it really is considered an adverse childhood experience. So if we can find ways to, to minimize that, we're going to be doing a great service to these children. And the thing is that, that those ways are very, it's not that hard. We, it's common sense in a lot of ways. We just got to get ourselves back to common sense. And so what are some of the um, suggestions you would have for people who are, uh, acrimonious, they're not able to get along, they can't speak to one another, they're so angry, they're talking about their ex to their children. Um, what, what advice would you give to parents who are, are stuck in that type of a situation? 
when if they're in a in a high conflict situation like that they really do need some assistance some professional assistance and there's great divorce coaches out there there's great therapists there's mediators there's lots of conflict resolution professionals parenting coordinators who can help these families and these parents learn how to communicate better so if they really can't do it themselves which is the ideal but if they can't then bring in a neutral party who can assist with the communication, get some protocols set up, and really take the burden off the children. There are many good alternatives now. Technology is such a part of our lives today, and I understand there are some programs where parents can communicate exclusively through email, and then, in fact, they've been mandated through the courts uh, to do this. What do you think of that type of communication for couples who just can't get along or, or are struggling to get along? There, that's a great point, Maureen. There are um, great tools out there now, and there's different sites, and they, they, they work very well. And they become that neutral place. And in fact, some of the cases that I worked on uh, will have, like myself as the, the conflict resolution professional, would be on the site with the parents. So I can help monitor their communications and make sure that things are staying on task. So it really does take away the emotionality and the volatility of the situation. So that is one of the suggestions I often make to parents is to use that kind of um, platform for uh, communication. How about if one, and I had this uh, couple in my clinical practice where the, the wife was making up lies about the husband, her ex-husband, and saying them to not only her children, but the neighbors and friends as well. And so really giving him a bad reputation uh, in the, you know, amongst all of his uh, close, uh, the people who were close to him. Uh, how would you suggest um, that that be dealt with? Well, there really is a simple rule around that one. It's basically don't say anything about your ex that you wouldn't say about your child. Because it's as if you're saying it about the child. So if you're disparaging that ex, it's you're doing it to the child. So remember that your ex, you know, your child's carrying 50% of their DNA. And so we know, and and the research is very strong, that lets us know how important it is for children to have relationships and attachment connection with both of their parents. And their internalized view of themselves is based on their perception of their parents. So we want to make sure that um, even if you don't like your ex, you know, um, edit yourself and only say what you would say about your child and, uh, and, and use discipline. We try to teach children about discipline. Well, adults, we need discipline too. Now, these uh, divorces, great, great points there. Um, these divorces can be dragged through lawyers. <laughs> Forget the courts. They don't even get there um, because most have a settlement. You know, generally, it's my understanding, prior to it getting to court. But that can be a long road and it can be expensive. So we've talked about the children. So how can it hit you financially um, if you're, um, you know, being nasty or not able to get along or not being able to be disciplined uh, when it comes to your soon to be X. It really is can be devastating to the resources in a family, emotional uh, resources and also financial resources. And so, you know, the the good news is there are so many um, uh, lawyers and professionals who who know how to do this well. And so there's different models. There's the collaborative model where everybody basically signs on saying they're not going to go to court anyways, and they commit to making a settlement out of court. And they have lawyers that uh, are especially trained to support that process, as well as mental health professionals. And there's mediation, and there's um, all sorts of other uh, ways to resolve our disputes and differences. So it doesn't have to be dire, and it doesn't have to break the bank. But if you let it get out of control, it will drag you and your children along. 
Absolutely. Now, um, we're looking for good divorces, and I, I would imagine emotional clo- closure for both partners, so an, a disengagement from the relationship and the conflict, um, no unfinished emotional business. I would imagine that would be you know, one sign or characteristic of a good divorce. Are there some other signs that you would think of that uh, might be characteristic of a good divorce? Well, it really is. I mean, ideally, it is being able to be in that place of uh, co-parenting. If you have children, being able to make decisions together, sharing information. So if you get something from the school, when you pick up your child, you make sure that the other parent does as well. And being able to attend the events that your children have and even attend them together. Just because your parents' uh, relationship didn't work out doesn't mean you can't still be united in your support of your children. So there's many um, many ways we can see that, very cooperative relationships. I worked with one family and I thought it was fabulous where every Sunday morning they did their exchange. It was a week on, week off uh, schedule. And they all had breakfast together and they shared the week and the activities that were coming for the week or else they would debrief what had happened that week. Now there's an example of doing divorce well. Uh, that sounds like a great idea and a great segue to my next question. Christmas dinner coming up for those people who are celebrating Christmas as a holiday. Um, do you suggest, and I don't even know if you can answer this, uh, yes or no, suggest if uh, you know everybody's sitting down to Christmas dinner together? Well, I mean, that doesn't necessarily, you know, it might maybe be the first Christmas after, but it's not realistic because people's lives do kind of move on. But what's important is that, is that the children have the ability to spend time with both parents over the holidays and that there be, and not just their parents, their parents' family, right? They, right. they still need that sense of, I'm a part of this family, this whole community, and I'm a part of this family. And if there are ways for them to overlap, coming to the Christmas concerts, doing things like that, that that's a lovely thing for children. But it doesn't mean you have to commit to, you know, for the rest of your life sharing Christmas dinner with your ex because that might not be what you want to do and your life has moved on. Children can adapt. It's just as long as they feel that both parents are honoring and supporting the connection with the other parent. Wonderful. Allison Jones, great information. The clinical director and visionary at Allison Jones and Associates. Thank you so much for joining me this evening, Allison. Thank you so much for the opportunity and and, uh, happy holidays to, to everybody. studio is Professor Janine Benedette from the Peter Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. She's here to talk about the recent study around sexual abuse of girls. And believe me, the findings are going to shock you. Thank you so much, Dr. Benedette, for joining me in the studio. You're very welcome. So I was very intrigued. As you know, I have a clinical practice and I deal with a lot of women who were sexually abused as a child by... Uh, someone that one would not suspect. Um, I think people don't realize um, how common this is, how often this happens, and who is doing it. So would you mind, um, I'd love to hear the results of this study and some of the more um, critical findings. Well, this was a study that I conducted with my colleague, Professor Isabel Grant, and we were interested in... um, in really kind of taking a snapshot of the kinds of cases that are making it into the criminal justice system in Canada. And we wanted to think about teenage girls as complainants, as victims of sexual assault, because if you look at the data, you will see a very sharp spike in victimization in the age range of 13 to 15. It's quite pronounced. And the data also tells us that while um, uh, young people uh, make up about 20% of the Canadian population, they're about 55% of the victims of reported sexual assaults. And so we were interested in that data. We wanted to see what kind of cases were being reflected in uh, the criminal justice system. And we really wanted to bring the Me Too conversation to girls because so much of that focus has been on adult women in universities, in the workplace, but we're not really focusing on the group who is actually 
the most uh, frequent victims of sexual violence. And this can have such a tremendous negative impact on the quality of their lives. Uh, This study was a three-year study of Canadian case law involving sexual offenses against adolescent girls from the ages of 12 to 17. Um, And uh, how how many um, were in this study? So uh, we looked at um, cases, uh, ultimately it was over 600 uh, girls, 625 complainants in 510 cases because, of course, some cases involved multiple victims. And that was all cases that we could find that produced any kind of written reasons for decision in English and in French in all provinces and territories in Canada. And, and some of these girls never uh, see the legal system, so they, they never become a complainant. So I imagine this would be a much higher this number. Is, this really is just the tip of the iceberg. These are already cases that have run the gauntlet uh, of the girl coming forward to complain, of someone taking that complaint seriously, of it being reported to uh, police and not being screened out by police and the Crown. So uh, that's right. This is only a very small fraction of the sexual assaults that are taking place. And we're going to be going to the news very shortly, uh, but I want to say these were not young boyfriends engaging in sex where girls agreed to participate. Um, but I want you to stay, I'm going to ask you to stay in the studio, and thank you very much for doing so, because I want to talk about the statutory rape myth. And I also want to talk about who actually is sexually abusing our little girls in society. Joining me in the studio, if you're just joining me, is Professor Janine Benedett from the Peter Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. And we are talking about a recent sexual abuse of girls study that where she was the co-author um, on that. And, and one of the findings is that um, 50% of adolescent girls um, were abused by a particular person in their life. Um, and it, it surprised me, even though I work in this clinical practice, but to actually see it in numbers. And so, so who are girls between the ages of 12 and 17 mostly abused by? Well, at least of the cases that are making their way to court, uh, nearly half of the girls were abused by a male family member. So a father, a stepfather, a grandfather, an uncle, a brother, and the single largest group uh, among those were fathers and stepfathers. In fact, one of six cases involved a stepfather and, and the, uh, the fathers sort of collectively, fathers and stepfathers were a quarter of all of the cases. And so they're certainly the single most prevalent group among offenders in the cases that we looked at. Shocking and, and so heartbreaking, really. Because you look to your parents for somebody um, that provides you security and you learn trust. And so you, many women who have been sexually abused as a child um, have issues with security and trust and intimacy in particular, um, which is what I see in my clinical practice. And so were you surprised by these findings? Well, not entirely. I mean, when you think about sexual assault um, as a crime of opportunity and power, There is, of course, um, a lot of both of those things within the family. And I think one thing, though, that did surprise me was how many of those cases involved uh, acts of overt violence uh, against the girls. And in 30% of the cases in our study, girls were either asleep or intoxicated or both at the time that at least some of the sexual abuse took place. So the vulnerability of these girls was really quite profound. So this flies in the face of the statutory rape myth. So what exactly is the statutory rape myth? Well, there's a perception sometimes, uh, as the phrase statutory rape would suggest, that the sexual abuse of teenage girls is a kind of technical violation, that we have an age of consent, and that these are cases of otherwise uh, willing or uh, agreeing participants where they just happen to fall a bit outside the uh, age boundaries that the law sets. And we wanted to test whether that was true, especially because the age of consent was raised from 14 to 16 in 2008, and we wanted to see if that made a difference in the kind of cases that were coming before the court. But only a very small number of cases involved uh, young uh, accused, and in fact the age difference between the accused and the victim in most cases was uh, average around 16 years, even when we took out family members, and it was closer to 20 years when family members were included. So these were not young men. 
So we can be talking about close to 40-year-old men, you know, men in their 30s and 40s. Absolutely. That was certainly the most uh, frequent demographic. That That are sexually assaulting, that are raping um, girls between the ages, and oftentimes their daughters or their wife's, their new wife's daughter. That's right. Is, um, is the reality. Yes, and, and very few of the cases, only 4% of the cases were uh, stranger sexual assaults. Even when it wasn't a family member, it was almost always someone known to the family, a family friend, the parent of the girl's friend, uh, someone who was uh, in a position of access and often trust in relation to the girl. And, and what were some of the other um, poignant uh, aspects of this study? Well, it is important to remember that in the cases we looked at, um, about one in five were historical prosecutions. That means that, at least on our definition, at least 10 years had elapsed since the sexual abuse before the case was uh, actually going to court. And many of those cases were quite heartbreaking because in most cases, girls had tried to tell someone at the time that the sexual abuse was taking place and they were either not believed or they were warned that it would destroy the family um, and uh, they weren't able to bring those cases forward. And sometimes that meant the abuse continued over an even longer period of time or other girls in the family were abused as well. And so um, this is, you know, there's a silver lining in every dark cloud. And so, but some people who have been sexually abused historically, (laughs) this is quite an emotional subject because I see so many patients who've experienced this, but there is some hope that they can take those cases 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road. What hope do they have in uh, justice and seeking justice? Well, I think it is important to note that once cases did make it to court, the criminal justice system did treat these cases very seriously. In over 70% of the cases uh, that went to trial, there was a conviction and sentences were significant. There were very few uh, accused who got probation or sentences below a year. Um, uh, Most of the accused were being sentenced to federal penitentiary time. So I do think we've moved beyond the era where we blame children for coming on to adults or when we think that if it's only touching, it's not really harmful. I do think many of those myths, even though they may linger in some people's minds, um, are no longer present uh, in, um, in an overt way in the criminal justice system. Uh, and courts do see these cases as serious It is unfortunate, however, that um, in our study, we still see those stranger sexual assaults getting higher sentences than any other category of offender, including fathers. And so we do need to question whether we're uh, truly appreciating just how harmful the breach of trust is uh, in those cases. And why do you think that um, strangers are getting stiffer sentences than the fathers or an uncle or... Because there's an idea somehow that those are the most violent, um, that there's the greatest sense of terror. And and you can see the same thing with adult women as well. And we forget that when it's a family member, when you're being sexually assaulted in your own bed, and when you're being sexually assaulted in many of these cases over and over, that the harm is really profound. And it does affect your ability to to trust um, and uh, your you know your whole sense of your family and in many of these cases, of course, there were other effects of the abuse on the family. The family, as a result, was broken up. In some cases, children were placed into care, and teenage girls often carried a lot of guilt for those consequences to the family. When, of course. It's really the abuser that ought to, to bear that responsibility. Of course. I just want to give people hope out there that might have this secret or that might be living with this shame or, or the stigma um, or that it's impacting their re- current relationship because it does and it, and it will, um, that they can, that it's, is it ever too late to seek that justice or, and, and does that help women? In Canada, we don't have a statute of limitations for sexual assault, so Mm -hmm. there's no fixed time period. And we have seen cases where 20, 30, even 40 years after the fact, victims have come forward and there have been convictions. There were accused men in our studies in their 80s who the court was willing to convict um, and in many cases sentenced to a, a, a significant period of imprisonment. So no, it's never too late. And certainly what your listeners should know um, and what this study 
clearly demonstrates is that uh, they're not alone. Uh, that this is a very, very common uh, phenomenon. And um, uh, it's not something that is remarkable or your fault or uh, that there's something about you because it's really quite widespread. It's very widespread and and yet it's a uh, secret shame. Oftentimes women will cross the threshold of my clinical practice and will say to me, um, you know, they might be in their 60s and they'll say, I was sexually abused as a child. I just want you to know that. And you're the first person that I've ever told, but I've dealt with it and I've, you know, but they may not have a relationship. They may have had failed relationships or, or issues going on. They've struggled in their lives. And oftentimes it's with anxiety is what they struggle with and it manifests itself in a number of different ways. Um, what were some? What What do you think we need to do here? Um, you know how we need to wake up. Number one, um, but that's just part one. You know what do we need to do in Canada really to um, to eliminate this in in society? Well, our focus really as, uh, as legal scholars is what role does the criminal justice system play? Um, of course, that's coming at the, end of the, um, at the end of the line, but it also sends an important signaling message. If uh, rates of reporting are low because victims do not have confidence in the criminal justice system, it sends a message to abusers that they can get away with it, that essentially there's impunity for sexual abuse. So it's really important that the criminal justice system uh, function appropriately, that we have trained police officers, crown attorneys, judges who understand the way that this kind of abuse works, can recognize it, and don't fall into the trap of blaming the victim, of treating girls as somehow less credible because they can't perform in the witness box the way that an adult witness might perform, and of redesigning our criminal justice system to make adolescent girls in particular comfortable when they do come forward to be able to participate effectively in that process. And so that's really our focus um, as legal scholars. But of course, there are um, steps that can be taken all along, um, uh, you know, uh, in so many different domains. I, I think so. And, and having the conversation very early with your children, you know, as a mother, um, if you have young daughters, I don't think it's the wisest thing to have male babysitters who are adolescents, perhaps, or or leaving your young children, because it can happen to boys and girls, um, with, a, you know, a, a family friend, a male family friend or an uncle, or I just think, or, or even a Allowing your husbands to drive the babysitter home. You know, I, I think not necessarily that your husband might do something, but I think we actually have to be more aware of, um, you know, the potential um, for these situations, given this study that 50% um, of the men are stepfathers, fathers, and a, and a great percentage of them are family friends or a, an uncle or somebody like that. So, so I think we have to be far more overprotective of our children and realize that this is a tremendous risk and that one that will ruin lives. Well, I mean, we want girls, obviously, to be able to live in the world, to be able, you know, not... Um uh, not to have their freedoms curtailed because of the actions of others. But we also need That's to right. be realistic and uh, focusing solely on stranger danger and warning your kids about that doesn't really speak, at least based on the data we have, to where the greatest uh, risk is actually located. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Janine Benedett, Professor of Law at UBC. Really appreciate your time and, and great work. I, uh, I very, very grateful that you've done this study. Thanks for having me. The holidays are upon us. If you're anything like me, you've been to a few parties and uh, trying to deal with the those uh, trays of hors d'oeuvres and beef sandwiches and... Uh, um, all of that, trying to navigate that, and how are you disciplined? Well, joining me in the studio once again is the author of The Bio Diet, The Scientifically Proven Way, Proven Ketogenic Way to Lose Weight and Improve Your Health. David G. Harper joins me. David, thanks so much for joining me in the studio again. Oh, so fun to be back this here This is a tonight, big Mike. issue, um, and, uh, you know, it's really tough to go to those parties. Do yep. we eat before? Do we eat there? They're only offering high-carb options. and Just came from one. Yes, exactly. I've been to two this weekend. Okay. Um, so what are your recommendations for managing the holiday 
buffets. If you're on a ketogenic diet, like the bio diet, it's a, it's a challenge for sure. Um, so just so the listeners know, a ketogenic diet is very low carb. So all those nice sweet treats and things that we do at uh, most holidays, but especially in the Christmas season, it's the festive season. And first thing is, uh, if, you're th- if you haven't adopted a ketogenic diet and you're thinking about doing it, now is not the time. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so let's wait till January <laughs> okay. and uh, I'm going to be coming on the show and, and we're going to talk you through the whole bio diet 12 weeks um, in the new year. So if you haven't started, then you can join us in January. But if you have started a ketogenic diet and you're partway into it and you're concerned, um, there's lots of little steps you can do. And the first thing is to, um, uh, you know, if you're going to a party, maybe talk to the host and say, listen, I'm ketogenic, but you don't have to do anything special for me. In fact, I'll bring something with me. And there's great ketogenic cookbooks out there and they can make their own little treats and bring them with them. Uh, the party I just came from, they had some smoked salmon there. They had some prawns. I was scarfing those, you know, a cheese plate, some vegetables, all that is keto friendly. So add nuts to that. Uh, and maybe a charcuterie or something like that. Just you know, eat that stuff because there's usually lots of you know people have food of all kinds there. And whether you're vegan, vegetarian, or omnivore or whatever carnivore, I'm sure if you go to a party, you're going to find something you can eat. And and uh, you know what? Go easy on the booze, you know, because um, is that ketogenic? You can. Ha- I, I drink wine. Okay. Um, I used to drink beer. I love beer, but I don't. Uh, I'll have the very occasional is, one. But is wine ketogenic? I see a lot of ketogenic people drinking vodka. Uh, you know what? As long as it's pure, it's pretty good. Now, scotch is pretty good. Okay. Um, but uh, wine, you know, it's four to six grams. And uh, even though on the bio diet, I don't really worry about counting grams of carbs. Uh, it's not designed that way. It's much easier. But there's about four to six. So, you know, if you have a glass of wine, if you're a woman or two, if you're a guy and, you know, you're not operating machinery or driving a car, it's, it's fine. It's not going to knock you out of ketosis. And in fact, we've done this in the lab and shown that you can still stay in ketosis with a drink or two. But uh, after that, your judgment gets impaired too. And suddenly those cookies look pretty tasty, right? They do. They do. And um, drinking and driving, none of that this season. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, I just want to say that. Um, So how is it from a psychological standpoint for people who it's very difficult when you see, you know, I was at a party last night and I was about to leave this morning. Anyway, <laughs> no, it was late. It was like one thirty in the morning and I grabbed a piece of cantaloupe and then the, the host said, uh, you can't just have cantaloupe without grabbing a chocolate. And they had these beautiful English toffees there. And so of course I did. I broke mm. down. Um, I'll forgive you. Oh, thank you. I mean, who cares? <laughs> Chocolate's good for you. Just it's the chocolate. sugar in it, right? So you yes. get the uh, high, the high, uh, carob. But you know, sometimes people succumb to the pressure of like course. I did. And you know, oftentimes people will say, oh, just have this. Oh, come on. What's wrong with you? You look amazing. You know, don't, you know, what do you, you know. Just this um, one little bit, right? Just this one little, what was the wafer thin? One little wafer thin. Well, you know, not everybody's going to be your friend. So, uh, you know, in this journey, but uh, look on the positives. If you have been on a ketogenic diet, you probably lost some weight. You're probably looking great. So use that as positive feedback. But but people will say, oh, a little slice won't hurt. But they're actually convincing themselves. They're not convincing you. So... Uh, part of the psychology is just to, uh, you, you might even want to eat something before you go so that you won't be tempted with that sort of thing. But as you say, if you're just passing out the door and something just looks so tempting and maybe you have a little bit, you know, if it's a little bit, it's a little slip, don't beat yourself up over it. Uh, just admit yourself, you know, I probably shouldn't have had that. And don't use it as an excuse to say, okay, now I've broken the seal. I'm just going to start pounding like pizza and, uh, and I'll start again in January. Don't do that either. Right. Just be really mindful about it, you know. As I say, have, sit, you know, if there's a, if there's finger food around, have a little of that, but don't hang around near like a like a bowl of of chips or something like that. Be mindful about where you are, and and what what your options are. And and again, if people uh, do compliment you on your great look because you've been on a keto diet, like the bio diet, then just use that as positive reinforcement that you're doing the right thing and reward yourself. Uh, and maybe you can have a little keto friendly thing when you get home. Right. And um, so if you've, you know, maybe had a piece of cake or one of those sliders or that mm. seemed to be popular <laughs> at the parties this season, yeah. um, it doesn't mean, you know, if it's okay, you've had that, you haven't yeah, yeah. <laughs> completely blown up your ketogenic no, diet. The sliders, I, I was at another event where they had a bunch of sliders and there was a lot of buns sitting on my plate. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, just, okay. I just take the meat out and eat that and uh, leave the bun on the plate. And you know what? I wasn't the only one doing that either. Right. There's a lot of, because there's gluten, of course, in those buns. And so there's a lot of people who have, have uh, sensitivity to gluten that don't eat those. So, you know, there's lots of friends around. So many people are doing ketogenic diets and low-carb diets that you're going to have some support there. So you can look for them and kind of buddy up and talk about how good you're doing. 
chocolate. That's right. And I know you call this a diet, but it's really a lifestyle. It's isn't a lifestyle. It? Yeah. Yes. Well, and that's it takes a while. That's why we'll have the 12 weeks. Wonderful. So I look forward to that in the new year. I'm going to be joining you on that Wonderful. journey as well. I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. I'm going to eat my way till New Year's. <laughs> you just, do that. Just kidding. Um, he's the author of the book, The Bio Diet, The Scientifically Proven Ketogenic Way to Lose Weight and Improve Your Health. David G. Harper, thanks for joining me. The book's available on Amazon. Wonderful. Happy Festivus, everybody. We'll see you in the new, new decade. Recently on LinkedIn, I read about a very sad story, horrific story, especially at this time of year. Early in December, Kirsten Schledetsky and her sons, William, 11, and Nelson, 8, were shot and killed at their home in Minneapolis. Uh, This was a domestic violence situation. And Pamela Hill Nettleton wrote a fabulous opinion piece. Uh, Pamela has a PhD and wrote a fabulous opinion piece asking the question, or stating the question, we are asking the wrong questions about domestic violence. And she joins me on the line. Good evening, Pamela. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? Fine, thank you. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. I know you cover this this issue of intimate partner violence often on your show, and I commend you for that, because what I study is how media cover this issue and... Your, um, the, amount, the amount of times that you just even bring it up in your podcast is just terrific. Thank oh, well, you for that. Well, thank you so much for mentioning that. I'm, I'm very passionate about this issue um, and about uh, equality in life. And I'm a peace, <laughs> peaceful, loving, by nature person. Um, it, it affects me hard when I hear about uh, intimate partner violence and, and domestic abuse. And, and I think... Uh, it's, we have a huge ship to turn around here, and and how do we do it? And when I saw this incredible article that you wrote, we are asking the wrong questions about domestic violence, I was given some hope, I must say, because we ask the question often, why does she stay? What did she do to make him hit her? Oh, he got upset. But what is the question that we need to ask? We need to ask, why does he hit we really bend over backwards to not notice that men are being violent. And we focus our energies on helping the victim, suggest our, our big prevention effort for domestic violence is that the woman should abandon her life, take her children and flee. There's no other crime that we, folk, we deal with in this way. We seem to act like it's, improper to turn and look at the perpetrator even our language we talk about abused women we don't talk about abusive men the whole problem is of women who are hit we're totally focused on the victim and the thing is if we do that we're just never going to get to the solution the numbers are never going to go down we're never going to get to a better place we cannot make change when we hold the victim rather than the criminal responsible we're acting like we don't understand the crime. And it's such a great point that you make. And that's why I invited you on the show to talk about this. Um, you know, we have very few messages out there. Um, and, and in part, a lot of people talk about, well, we don't allow men to express, boys and men to express their emotions. And so when they don't express their emotions and they're going to blow up and lose it. So we don't teach um, men how to handle rage or cope in a nonviolent way in life. And, and, and when does that begin? Where do, we, where do we start that conversation? I mean, starting here, and I appreciate that you're, you are here, but I mean, I, I think we really have to name what this is. Men hit women, men throw women down the stairs. It's more often, as you point out in your article, men than women who abuse. I often hear from men when I'm having this conversation, just in a, you know, in a social setting even, well, women hit men too. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, women do. Women don't kill them at the high rates that men kill women. Women don't inflict the same level of significant physical damage. Um, both in Canada and the U.S., the, the percentage of men who have um, reported that their female partner attack, has attacked them is 6 to 7%. That is dramatically less than one in one in, out of every three women 
has some sort of physical abuse from an intimate partner at some point in her life, and that includes rape and murder. Uh, the most dangerous man in a woman's life is the one who says he loves her. You know, if a woman is going to be traumatically injured, it's going to be by the person she lies down next to. We do this stranger danger stuff, but twice as many women are killed by their partners. We have a caller. By do- anybody else. No, no. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, okay. Um, w- the narrative that we that we tell um, here is that, well, he just got upset or I don't want to upset him. Um, we We dance around men or walk on eggshells um, around them. Or the other narrative being uh, um, when you said the most d- dangerous man is the man you're lying next to a- in bed, um, they f- there's some narrative out there that says um, they're most comfortable with you, and so that's why they're going to scream at you, and, and uh, you know, if it leads to hitting or eventually killing. Um, but there's this whole idea that it's it's okay because they're comfortable with you and they feel secure with you. So that's why they get to do this. Yeah. Well, I have an opinion about that. Point of view, but you know what, what is you, you mentioned something just before that, that is really true. We, we have this um, walking on eggshells idea. And what I study is media. So I study, um, I've studied decades of men's magazines and women's magazines. I've studied, um, television and film. I studied um, videos, on all kinds of media texts to look at the narratives of how we talk about um, relationships between the genders, but also domestic violence. And it absolutely occurs also um, in the LGBTQ community. It absolutely occurs sometimes that women are violent against men, but overwhelmingly it's um, heterosexual cisgendered men attacking and and often killing, um, too often killing, the straight cisgendered woman with whom they are they are linked somehow in a romantic partnership. So we start there. We start there when we're looking. This doesn't dismiss the real um, problems in, in these other two areas. It's just that it occurs less often. So if we want to look at social change we might make, we can start with with the numbers. And we hold in media not in your show, but in many, many media sources, we hold women responsible. Women's media covers um, domestic violence often, covers it at length, and talks about it in really scary terms. Headlines like, how to spot a guy who's apt to get unhinged, as if, I mean, the FBI can't do that. I don't know how women are supposed to do that. (laughs) How you talk your way out of date rape, which is an awful statement to make for a woman who's raped, as if it's her responsibility. She didn't know the magic word. Right. Murdered by the man of your dreams when love turns deadly. Okay, we, those kinds of headlines. Men's media, media aimed at men, men's magazines, men's websites, rarely if ever mention domestic violence. It's brief. They're dismissive or humorous about it. Um, girls gone postal when your honeybee gets buzzing. You know, it's, it's that sort of tone. Um, and... If they cover it, they challenge the validity of the uh, statistics. Most of the statistics I work with come from the U.S. Department of Justice, but then I also um, sometimes am looking at international media or uh, sources around the world about the safety of, of women and children. So I kind of draw from a number of these sources. But over and over and over, the message is that prevention is we just have to move the victim. And right. if then the perpetrator is going to suddenly magically stop being a violent guy. And that, of course, it is not going to work. It's just not going to work. And we also address this, to- this topic, and you mentioned this already. Isn't it interesting? Like men can't handle the conversation. You know, not only do we take care of them about the violence, like men can't handle it, we better handle it for them, but they can't even take the conversation. There's a, um, I think it was Cosmopolitan that had an article the five triggers that spark his violence. And here are the triggers, fatherhood, work, money trouble, breaking up, and jealousy. So pretty much life. Life, exactly. (laughs) Life triggers his his violence. And what we don't see, and part of my particular training in media studies is to look at what isn't there. What we don't see, what is absent in media narratives are men who who take responsibility, for their violence, who may be 
manage their rage, figure out a way to change their approach. Um, Men who take active roles in helping reduce the amount of intimate partner violence in their communities. We don't see any connection discussed between uh, male violence and how it's treated socially um, and patriarchal or ideas or male privilege. We, we never see um, men and women working together to figure out how are we going to deal with this issue and reduce it. it. It becomes a very gendered response. And, and it is also very often treated as an individual response, like one woman just married badly rather than we have got a society where men hurt women at an alarming rate. And women are half the population and, and women um, committed like 14% of the, of the physical violence. I'm not talking about just domestic violence there. I mean, the statistics are overwhelming that men have a violence problem and babies don't show up that way. No, so no. we're doing something. We're yes. doing something and we need to look at that. Well, one thing I hear in my clinical practice um, from couples who, uh, where the man has an anger problem, um, they, they often will say, I felt the only way that she would listen to me is if I screamed at her, if I, if I raised my voice. And, and so there's this con- control out of control um, approach. Mm-hmm. And and I think mm-hmm. men maybe are taught that that you are powerful if you scream. Um, I, I think absolutely, yeah, yeah. I I, I believe you about that. And the um, Duluth, uh, Northern Minnesota city, has this Duluth model. It happened to grow out of that city in how to work with men who are violent in their families. And a big tenant of this is that it's men trying to exercise power and control. That's what's going on. That's and right. And we link in our ideas of masculinity, you know, that's about power and that's about control. We have to change and dismantle all the possibilities about all the kinds of ways that one might express masculinity. It's not that. That's not the path to happiness and contentment and the best relationships, Lord knows. That's right. And I think these men also feel, and I bet if I say this, there's a lot of men that are going to be, say, she's right out there. It's how they feel about themselves on the inside. Maybe it's related to the fact that they weren't allowed to express themselves as a child or um, they were not allowed to express their emotions. Maybe that was not taught. They were not, you know, that's not manly if you cry. Um, and so I think it's a big self-esteem issue. And the, the, and the bigger the gap between how they feel on the inside and how they present themselves when a problem arises, like like work or life or <laughs> finances or a baby, um, you know, they lose it. And, you know, it's it's discipline. It's, you know, it is, it's, it's raising awareness. Um, I mean, there's just so much that needs to change, but we need to recognize that, his behavior was inappropriate. That response was inappropriate. And I think it starts with the yelling. Yeah. Oh, you know, there's, a, there's certainly a continuum. You're exactly right here. And uh, men congratulate themselves. I've heard it many times ago. I've never hit a woman. Mm-hmm. No, but um, yelling, uh, abusing her verbally or emotionally, bullying her, um, demeaning her and her ideas, making fun of her, that's on the spectrum too. That verbal abuse and, and that emotional abuse is actually in some studies has been shown to have longer range and deeper effects than some kinds of, of physical abuse. Uh, I'm not oh. you know, obviously talking about you know, being really seriously injured or being killed. Pamela Hill Nettleton, Ph.D., professor, writer, editor, the University of St. Thomas in the greater Minneapolis-St. Paul area, is my guest. She's on the line, and we are talking about, we are asking the wrong questions about domestic violence. Uh, Thanks so much for staying on the line, Pamela, and for all of the information thus far. What? uh, So we've pretty much concluded that um, it's strikingly there's much more physical, emotional, mental abuse and murder of women um, by men than than the other way around. 
um, and this needs to change. And so men abusing and killing women has got to stop. And so what is it that you recommend from a social perspective, um, given all of the great work that you've done uh, reviewing media coverage and scores of publications and hundreds of articles? What do you think um, we need to do uh, in order for this to begin to change? And, and there are wonderful people in, you know, sociologists, criminologists, psychologists working in this field. I don't pretend to be them, but I read their work. Uh-huh. And here's what I think. I think that men need to discipline other men. I don't, I think men listen to each, each other uh, differently than to women. And as much as me and women might write about and complain about and raise the issue, it's not until men start challenging other men about it and make it a, a condition of alpha masculinity that you respect women. I think that would maybe be the first thing. The second you've touched on that we need to stop separating boys from their emotions and um, help men understand that they, um, they don't need to be emotionless and all powerful They're, They can be get pretty comfortable with their emotions and with not being the person who's handling everything in the room. Uh, otherwise, they doubt their masculinity, and then this is a big trigger for violence. And third, I think we have to change our conversation. We have to shift it from being about her to being about him. And and how about that fiction that men are tougher, stronger, smarter oh. than women? Yes, we have, and that's harmful to men. We do have this fiction that men are tougher, braver, stronger, smarter, that they can do everything better than women can. And this doesn't serve men. Men wake up in the morning and wonder if they're man enough. Women don't wake up in the morning and wonder that about themselves. Um, we, we have a near impossible standard that the ideal male is supposed to attain, and, and it can't be attained by anybody. So if we can, if we can help bury that fiction, uh, I think that that would really help. That's a tremendous pressure on men. Absolutely. I see that reflected in the, in the um, media accounts of this over and over again. Thank you so much, Pamela Hill Nettleton. I really appreciate you coming on the program and clarifying this, and I'd love to have you come back because I really think we need to keep this conversation going. I would be happy to, and thank you, Maureen. Thanks for the work you're doing in this area. Oh, you're very welcome. Very, very little, but I appreciate it. It's time for The Bedroom Bulletin. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. Usually in this segment of the show, I uh, talk about, I get a little bit more risque, shall we say. But you know what? Sometimes there's issues in relationships, and sometimes people may not know how to treat uh, the other person in their relationship. So I'm going to give you some of my wisdom on how to treat each other in the relationship. Uh, It's important that, and then ultimately this may lead to a little bit more, you know what, or better intimacy, more frequency. You know, I I can't understand sometimes, especially men, and we've been talking a lot about men's anger and men who kill women tonight on the program, and you might be killing emotions as well and and killing the intimacy in your relationship um, because of your behavior. I mean, I I deal, that's all I deal with all week long is the behavior of, uh, or oftentimes, you know, sometimes I'm dealing with other issues like bladder health issues and, um, but I'm dealing a lot with behavior amongst couples. Uh, and sometimes people can't see, like, why doesn't she want to have sex with me? Well, because you are screaming at her because she forgot eggs, you know, and so, or, or vice versa, because that can happen too. But as if you were listening to the previous segment, you heard that it happens a whole lot more um, with men uh, toward women. So, um, but in any healthy relationship, feelings must never be discredited. And oftentimes, guys, you know, you have a tendency to brush things aside or say, oh, you know what, no big deal. Oh, you know, oh, so what, I forgot or or whatever. And you're dismissing um, a woman. You might say, well, that's a ridiculous thing to be upset about. Um, or I can't believe that you'd be upset by that. These are statements that are cringeworthy. They will drive a woman crazy because ultimately you are dismissing her. So I like to give you some strategies, some tips always on the better way, (laughs) the Maureen McGrath way. (laughs) Um, But you might say something like, I'm sorry if, you know, if your partner, girlfriend, whomever, um, 
and this applies to same-sex marriages and, and relationships as well. Um, you know, I'm sorry if, if your partner's upset. I'm sorry that my actions caused you to feel that way or upset. That wasn't my intention. That sounds a whole lot healthier than, oh my gosh, you're being ridiculous. Oh, you always do this, this black and white or all or nothing uh, thinking. Um, so you never want to come across that way, even though you might think it's ridiculous uh, that somebody was upset that you washed their cashmere sweater or something like that. Um, uh, so it's, um, you be very mindful, be very kind and caring and compassionate and try to understand where your partner is coming from. You always want to stand up for your partner and especially um, men need to come forward. If you see a situation that needs to be dealt with, you need to step forward and deal with it. For example, if somebody is being rude to your partner, um, your female partner, you know, women still appreciate a man stepping up to call them on it. And so you want to be there to defend and protect. Women do need that security. They need somebody who is always looking out for them. It doesn't mean, um, if she, if she can't defend herself, it doesn't mean that chivalry isn't dead. So, you know, chivalry is still alive, um, and much appreciated. And so it's, it's not that, you know, in certain situations, and there's certainly nuances about this, women can stand up for themselves. Um, but if somebody is, you know, is being mean or being rude or being inappropriate, uh, you need to come to her defense. And and it's really important that it's critical that men begin to talk about what bothers them, whether it's something that bothered you from your childhood whether it was the fact that you didn't feel that your parents loved you in the way that you would have liked to have been loved, whether you felt that there was preferential treatment for another sibling, whether you felt that life isn't fair, whether you're feeling badly or guilty about something, when you talk about something, you release the pain. Men have a tendency in relationships to shut down when they feel hurt and and what's advisable is to express it because you too can be hurt in a relationship. It's not just women who get hurt in relationships and nobody benefits from silence or keeping things bottled up inside of you because that actually can lead to illness and it can lead to mental illness, mental health issues like anxiety and depression. It can lead to substance abuse. It can lead to uh, the breakdown of the family, the breakdown of the relationship. And so it's really hard. I get it for guys to talk. I mean, oftentimes when guys will come into my clinical practice and, you know, we ha they booked an hour appointment and, and for 15 or 20 minutes, honestly, I am not exaggerating. They cannot get a word out. By the end of it, they're like standing up and gesticulating and they're, you know, they, they get, it's like, it's a safe space that they can express their emotions and their feelings always be respectful when you express your emotions and your feelings as well. And I, I don't ever approve of raising your voice. If you feel the tendency that you're going to raise your voice, or if you think you might be raising your voice at the person that you love, walk away and say, I need a little time. I'm just going to walk away. I'm going to come back. Um, so that's critical as well. And, and on the same note, withholding your needs, your desires, your emotions, your fears, your dreams, um, you, you typically hold those in. And if you are a guy that has a tendency to do that, and you know, it's, I'm not talking about every guy. I'm just talking about 99.9% .9 of you. <laughs> just kidding. Um, I know some of you are out there like, I'm expressing my needs and emotions. Do that in your relationship. And if you have a comment about this, call me. If you is a great way um, that you're, you're that you contribute to your relationship, or if you have had troubles in the past and you've actually uh, grown and developed and sought help, give me a call one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. Women want men to talk about their feelings. Um, that's what women want and that's what women need. But a lot of men feel that they will appear weak. You will appear strong if you talk about your feelings, your desires, your emotions. And because there's strength in that ability to 
be open and to be honest. And it'll make you feel closer. You'll have a more of an intimate life. Um, and, and the other thing, sex is a big issue. And that's um, what I see in my clinical practice quite often. Many, many patients come to see me because of the sexless marriage that they are in. And, uh, you know, oftentimes it's stopped for, you know, a decade. There's been no sex. But, and that's a totally different situation. That's a power issue. But, uh, you know, there's a desire discrepancy, which, which happens. That's normal. At the beginning of a relationship, uh, there'll be higher desire, especially on the part of the woman. There'll be more excitement. Women report more boredom in the bedroom. So over the longer term, women will lose interest in sex uh, more so than men. And so this can be a big issue that she doesn't want to have sex as much as I do. Um, and, you know, but you actually need to probe further about that and understand that and have some compassion as to uh, why she doesn't want to have sex. And please try not to take that personally, personally, because um, I know you're probably feeling like you're not getting the attention that you want, but you know, is your partner preoccupied with, with work, with children, with parents, with errands, with life in general? It's not that she doesn't care about you or doesn't love you necessarily. I mean, that could be the issue, um, but that's not what we're talking about here either. Um, so you want to have some understanding how challenging it might be um, to, uh, uh, you know, how challenging it might be for her to refocus her energy on you. I have Aaron on the line. Hello, Aaron. I'm the perfect candidate for what you're talking about when I grew up. Really? I used to beat up my sisters. I used to yell and scream at my mother. Oh. I don't know why. I used to pull hair. I used to beat up my brother. We would fight, go to school, fight with everybody. I couldn't get along with anybody. I don't know what the heck happened. And uh, how are you today? Well, I'm still in the community. I'm taking medication. Okay. I see a therapist. That's great. So you've taken the steps that you needed to grow and develop and and feel yeah. well. Maybe you didn't feel well. I don't know, mental illness or... But it was right from a young boy. Yes, and, and many people are born with a propensity toward mental illness, anxiety and depression. That's me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm very happy that you called in and, and shared. My sisters, they have good husbands now. You mess with their wives, you mess with their husbands. That's great to hear as well. Are you in a relationship? I'm alone. You're alone? Yeah. And but would you like to have a relationship sometime? Nope. No, okay. Friends. Friends are okay. Yeah, that's great. Okay, good. That's wonderful. Yeah, well, Aaron, I'm really happy you've gotten the help that you deserved and, and needed. That's fantastic. And I really appreciate you sharing your story because I bet there's a whole lot of other guys out there that are thinking, you know what? I was like this in my my first marriage, perhaps, or I was like this as a kid, or I was like this uh, in my teenage years. And, and you know, and it, I, I'm not going to blame society, but um, it's something that we cannot accept any longer. Uh, and, and being kind and being empathic and being compassionate in a relationship and, and contributor, contributory, so helping around with, um, you know, the, the chores and, you know, picking up some of the slack, making dinner, keeping the home neat and tidy, you know, still women do the lion's share of the housework um, and also being more decisive, uh, you know, also, you know, that's really important in terms of, um, you know, moving forward and growing together as a couple at, you know, to many women, a man who avoids making decisions is skirting his responsibility. So you want, that's about confidence as well. And self-confidence is so important. You gain self-confidence through exercise, through failure, through sleep, good nutrition, and cutting out down on the alcohol and the substances. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing is always make your partner feel special. It doesn't matter how, it doesn't have to be expensive, you may not be inclined to express yourself emotionally, but it's important and, and lovely to let your partner know how much you like them by being around them and taking care of them. And you can tell this through words or you can leave a little gift or, you know, do a little errand for her. Um, 
But and, and for many women, this is, quite frankly, their oxygen. And, you know, women are not, don't get off scot-free here. There's a, a lot of words that women use. I'm going to name a few. Uh, that are deadly terms. And when men hear them, they're just like, oh, no. And so this is like, you know, if you might ask a question to your wife and and say, you know, are, is everything okay? It's fine. So this is the word that women use to end an argument when she knows she's right and you need to stop. Um, but it doesn't, it's not a healthy word to use. Um, and, you know, what are you upset about is uh, another word is, is nothing. So for example, it'd be like, what are you upset about? Nothing. That's a, that shuts down any conversation and you need to be worried. Another one, and I'm not saying these are healthy. These are not. Um, another one is, uh, you know, daring you. So for example, if you say, I'm going to do this, then go right ahead, go do that. It's not permission. It's a dare. Do not do it. My warning to you. Another unhealthy, toxic word in a relationship is whatever, and that's a way of just writing you off, whatever, I'm done. And then when she's thinking long and hard on how and when you will pay for your mistake, she says, that's okay. Uh, And then (laughs) one final word, wow, this is not a compliment. She cannot believe that one person could be that stupid. <laughs> anyway, those are deadly terms. So it's critical to work on your relationship. Uh, be caring, be compassionate, be curious, be calm. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on the AM dial 980 CKNW.